Welcome to Uncultural Bias Podcast. My name is Kamar Williams. I'm your host on our show. We say culture is a matter of perspective and opinion. After all, culture is just another way to say discovered. We are on culture, we are biased, and we are black. So if you're just tuning in for the first time, first of all, thank you for joining us. Um, occasionally, I like to uh, remind everybody, if this is your first time, to subscribe, not only to our podcast, but on Apple and Spotify. But also visit my website, kamarwilliams.com. That's where I have an active blog that oftentimes will provide filler for that week's episode. Sometimes I cover topics that I didn't get to mention or expound upon, and I just think it's a great opportunity for people to engage um, just on the topic or even present new ideas on where we're going to talk about or what you want to hear about. So I check it often. So thank you guys for who have consistently uh, commented and engaged. So that being said, uh, I want to remind everybody, since it's tax season, to think, uh, check out our host for this week's episode, Compass Tax Advisors. Um, if you need Compass, if you need tax advice, please check them out. They're based out in Tallahassee, but I use them for my own tax needs. Um, it's run by a group of attorneys, and they are exceptional at what they do. It can help. You don't need to be an attorney. You don't need to be a business to use them. You could be just a regular uh, regular, regular person and still utilize them. So if you're trying to uh, work on your tax issues, tax season, please contact them at 850-273-7193. Um, you can uh, reach out to my best friend, uh, Jamie Coleman. She's a tax advisor, um, tax attorney, and she's brilliant. So, um, you know, you don't have to be in Tallahassee to utilize them. And they, they go across the state of Florida, especially nowadays because of Zoom. And everything, it's virtual, so uh, check them out. All right, so we talked about you guys being on Spotify and Apple. Uh, if you're on Apple, I would ask that you please rate this episode um, or even the past episodes. Check this out. Check us out from, we just had a podcast on Judas and Black Messiah. Um, that was receiving great feedback on that. Uh, we had a uh, vignette that we used. We talked about the Russell Wilson and Louis Harvey thing. Um, so, but if you've checked those out, please, if you're on Apple, rate it, um, leave a comment. Um, all those things matter as far as algorithm, as far as Apple's concerned. Got it? Great. Perfect. All right. Now that we've got all that housekeeping out of the way, um, let's get into what today's podcast. Uh, this is going to be a political cleanser, a political cleanser. So we've already done a part one and a part two. And so I, a lot has happened since we've done part three. Um, so this would be our fourth installment of this. And, uh, you know, I couldn't think of a better time to start bringing on a new guest and somebody who has some experience, uh, to say the least, in this realm. So I'm going to introduce you to a person who I actually have met via Twitter. Uh, his name is Mark Hodges. Now, before I bring him on, I want to say, um, just give you an idea. So Mark was a senior campaign advisor for the National Urban League. Um, regional organi organi organizing director for Organizing Together. Um, he was a uh, government policy analyst for the Florida Senate Minority Office, and he was a field director um, in uh, for a position uh, in Jacksonville, as well as a campaign manager for a state house uh, representative, um, as, well, as well as the executive um, secretary, and um, he was a field organizer, obviously, for Hillary America back in 2015-2016. So um, he's a graduate of Auburn University. And so without further ado, let me bring on Mark. Mark, are you still there? Thanks for having me, man. 
Man, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Now, what I like to do, Mark, is for people who are the first time uh, guest on a podcast, um, I like to give them a round of applause for showing up. So, <laughs> so. No, you're, you're too kind. You're too kind. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, it's all good, bro. It's all good. So thank you uh, for being a part of this podcast, man. I, I know I reached out to you on Twitter and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, more, more and more things with campaigns uh, these days are, are being done on Twitter, so I probably shouldn't have been surprised. But yeah, it's definitely definitely happy to see you reach out, man. Oh, it's all good, man. So I got a beef with you, though. I got to okay, go for it. Uh, it's you know I, I don't know if I can blame you per se, but I definitely blame your alma mater of Auburn University. Oh no, for giving us this piece of shit in Tommy Tuberfield. <laughs> oh, uh, look. All right. So first off, we don't claim this man. Uh, he left pretty disgraced from Auburn University a couple of years ago, like he's done about four other coaching positions. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I don't know if you've heard one, one of these stories. He was uh, coaching at Cincinnati, I believe, and he literally left a recruited dinner to go take another job. No, um, so, yeah. Yeah. He's that kind of guy. So uh, we do not claim him. But nonetheless, I, I feel it is my my duty as an Alabama or as an Auburn grad uh, from the state of Alabama to apologize on his behalf. So I was like, really, you know, maybe this is just, I don't know. It was a weird hope, I guess. I don't know. Um, I was hoping that he would have lost to Doug because he was an Auburn grad, and you know, to your point, he um, didn't really leave in the in the best of light. And so I was thinking, like, okay, well, Alabama's going to reject him. And he killed Doug. I don't understand that. Like, I mean, I, I guess it's a good segue. Talk about a little bit about uh, 2020 and from, the like, the Senate and the House um, in that regard. But what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, and so, you know, having gone to school there, I probably have a lot of thoughts that I, that I won't necessarily put on the air. So let's be real about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, one thing that is tried and true um, just about politics in that sort of area is that, like, let's be real, it is very, very heavily Republican dominated, both at local and state levels. And a lot of that sort of creates a, a sense of hopelessness for Democrats in the state. Now, they pulled out a massive coup in getting... Uh, Doug Jones elected to the Senate, but let's remember who he was up against. Yeah. Right. Roy Moore was uh, about as horrible of a candidate as you can possibly find. Um, You know, kind of similar to what we found with, with Georgia with this last special election with Kelly Leffler was probably about as bad of a candidate as you can find. Yeah. And so you have these scenarios in which people like that create a, a horrible taste, not just in Democrats mouths, but Republican mouths as well. And for Tupperville, you know, he did have the backing of the establishment. He did have the backing of a lot of local Republican um, executive committees, which, you know, cannot be taken for granted. And so even though, yeah, like he he has the effectiveness as, as a senator of, I don't know, a five-year-old, but he did have a lot of backing from the institution itself. And so it, it, is, it is very depressing to kind of see that that outweighs uh, Doug Jones' exceptional service on behalf of the state for, for the better part of 40 years. Mm. So I guess what I'm saying is, pro- to your point, it's always about the candidate, not about the, um, not necessarily about uh, the messaging, right? It just, it could be yeah. as bad. It's, it's, it's good bad. next to his name in a state that has voted Republican for a very long time. And as long as he doesn't do enough to turn people off, he's going to win just based upon the demographics and registration numbers of the state. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the Senate and how, you know, we went into 2020 thinking that Democrats were going to do just have great numbers, probably pick up four or five seats, maybe t- up to 10 seats and have a, a strong majority in the upper chamber. And then obviously, you know, bolster their lower chamber in, in the house. And that didn't turn out now. I, okay. I have an opinion. Um, I AOC and I, I kind of agree with her a little bit that it was all, it's all local. Right. And it was just based off a of poor, a strategy by House Victory and Senate Victory. Um, they, first of all, they picked p- bad candidates. And they their apparatus, or at least their online apparatus, was behind the times, in, you know, comparatively to the Senate. Or, to, excuse me, to the GOP. Uh, would you agree? Um, I think there's definitely a component of that, right? So one of the things that we kind of see in a lot of these states that that were were up in those Senate maps is, you know, specifically with Texas, specifically with Maine, uh, we talked about some of the issues that, that Jamie Harrison faced in South Carolina, is that the Democrats have a relatively small bench. Um, even here in Florida, uh, one of the things that we kind of struggle is at the local level to build up the resume of politicians who would do fantastic things for us in, in places like the House and places like the Senate. So I definitely think, you know, when, when you mentioned with regards to candidates, there there is definitely a lack of, of these sort of blockbuster candidates who are going to go out and energize an entire state. Now, we've seen things like that with Beto, and he's still lost. So, you know, I, I'm not 100% sold on the idea that it is strictly the candidates. I definitely think there was an idea of complacency that went into it, though. Right. So we had this entire federal messaging system that was built around like anti-Trump. Right. And, and we saw all these polls for months and months and months that showed us potentially taking back six, even seven seats. And when you see that for such a long period of time the urgency sort of dies out, doesn't it? Right. Like, right. like we start to see like, okay, well, this is, we've got this in the bag. We don't need to make those extra calls for an hour each day. We don't need to walk that extra walk packet. We don't need to, you know, recruit these extra two, three volunteers to these events or, or register these extra five voters. Mm-hmm. And so I think your realistic complacency was sort of the death of things. Now the individual candidates had a lot of issues themselves but, you know, I, I don't think they were horrible candidates, right? Like, so, so MJ Hager in, in Texas, Sarah Gideon in Maine, yeah. you know, you talk about Jamie in South Carolina. These are some fantastic people. I just definitely. Tony Ernst in Iowa. She was, she was good. Yeah. And, you know, there were just some obstacles. I, I definitely think there were some self-inflicted wounds. But, you know, the more and more I look at it, it, it comes back to complacency. Cunningham was a self-inflicted wound in North Carolina. Um, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was miserable to watch. I mean, one of the most winnable races in the entire country, and and we can't knock off Tillis. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if he just keep his dick in his pants, or at least at least hide. <laughs> That's way to put it. Yeah. If, at least or at least hide that you're not keeping your dick in your pants. Just you know, uh, just Jesus. It. Yeah. I mean, some of my friends were saying like, this is the most vanilla white guy we've seen run for Senate in quite some time. And yeah. that's the scandal that pops out. Like, I mean, I, I was impressed that yeah. like he managed to hide it for that long. But I mean, another thing as well, is that was the first real thing we've heard about him in, in, in the entire cycle. 
right? He kind of just existed in this in the realm of of running for office, and that's just that's complacency, and that's that's what ultimately leads to loss. Yeah, yeah. So you met, you said something interesting, and I w- actually want to get back to this later on in the pod about candidates because um, I think it's going to tie in here to Florida. But you talked about how the uh, Democrats have a inability to bolster up and build up a bench, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't. It's like I don't understand why that is because you see what who the Republicans run any and everybody, and they don't even have to be. Yeah, intelligent. They do. They don't have to be intelligent. They don't have to be. They don't even have to have verifiable skills as far as governing or legislative understanding. They just they slap a, 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 a campaign on them and they push them out. And they still get, and they get these people in upper and lower chamber that represent them, and then they become national figures, you know. And it's like for Democrats, though, we it's like we have have to have everybody that uh, you know dots the i, cross the t, checks the boxes, and then we're like, and then the party's like, okay, now we can get behind them. I think that's a problem for me, though. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And and you know, there's a couple of different angles to this, and one of those is the whole purity test for thee and not for me sort of mentality yeah. that we've taken into into running for office. And you know, it is very important. Like, let me just say, it is very important to expect a certain level of competence and etiquette and and professionalism from from your elected representatives, right? That is that is more important now, especially in the, the sort of Trump era, than ever. That being said, you know, one of the things that that definitely inhibits us is expecting these people to be perfect, mm. right? That is not something that we can, it's not a standard that we can hold even ourselves to, much less these elected officials. And so, you know, that's certainly the, that the sort of nuance of, you know, I want this person to embody every single one of my 41 values. Right. That definitely hurts us in the long run. Um, it's a big it's, you know, it, it, We're a big tent party, though. That's the thing. Yeah, definitely. And and so when you have eat everyone's perspective being, oh, well, this person has to match all of my values and you have a wide variety of perspectives, obviously you're going to create infighting. Um, so like what we're kind of seeing with, with the infighting with the more left progressive wing of the party and the more established wing of the party, ultimately there's a lot of stuff that we agree on, more stuff that we agree on that we don't. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we sort of have these purity tests definitely pits us against each other. So that's that old adage that like Democrats were like, we eat our own. And- yeah. Yeah. And that's not just a saying like, so one of the things you, we, we talked about with, with building a bench here in Florida is there is you know not just a lack of, of large numbers of, of state representatives and state senators and things like that to build up a bench, right? Like there's 120 representatives here in Florida. Yeah. And I believe we're at like 41, something like that of, yeah. of Democrats. We are like two votes away from a super minority. Yeah. And for everyone talks about, you know, this being a 50% plus one state, we are almost a super minority in the house. Yeah. Um, something, and, like, you know, think, something like California in the opposite, right? Yeah, it, it is. It is ridiculous. And so, you know, some of that goes into the districts being the way they are, but some of that goes into losing winnable races. Some of that goes into not having a, a real plan when it comes to understanding that in order to get people who can win at Congress, you have to build them up from the local level. Yeah. So I, I I'm, I'm going to say this because, well, it kind of ties into uh, where I want to go with this, but um, from my, in my opinion, uh, Democrats continually, and I, I, I don't want to get ever 
get you fired or you know i don't know if, <laughs> so if, if any the the views of this program are uh, this next section gonna be strictly kamara and not mark um <laughs> i appreciate that yeah uh i i feel like the democratic party lacks vision the florida democratic party in particular lacks vision as far as understanding candidates and i will say this from my own personal uh view i you know several years ago Long before, you know, in, in a time before time, I thought about running for the house. And so I was uh, I was approached to run and I sat down with some certain party leaders and at a dinner and I told them what my vision was for my area. And I, I had it all mapped out. I was like, this is where it's at. I took, gave them the numbers and they looked at it like, mm hmm, mm hmm, mm hmm. And so then they said, well, yeah, I'm going to tell you, Kamara, um, I don't see a black man winning in that area. In fact, our numbers tell us a white woman is going to is going to do fair much better. And so I was like, well, I don't agree with that because I actually understand this area. And, you know, it is I, I mean, I don't understand where you're getting that. I, I, I understand the area and I understand what the narrative. And for me, I. Winning and running in campaigns, I've, I know it's all about, it's about messaging, right? So then, you know, we part ways, and they, but pretty much it was told that you know, although they can't get involved in the primary, they are more looking towards this particular candidate than me, right? So I was like, you know, I'm not going to spend all my time and my money if I know the party is going to be running against me. At that time too, I just had it my my. Um, second child, she was young, and we had just got into a house. So I was like, financially, I can't take a risk, and I know the party's going to be working behind the scenes against me, right? So I didn't run. This person that runs, she goes and she gets Molly Watt. Oof. And I was like, I kind of looked at that, and I was like, yeah, see, I told you. <laughs> I was like, they because they had this idea that they because this person checked off boxes. She was a woman. She was white, and I, it's a it's a very fifty plus one district where I was at. Like it's it's a, it's a certain demographic, and I was like, that's not gonna win you a seat by looking at the bare bones of what makes a candidate. You have to look at messaging. You have to look at you have to look at um, demeanor of the candidate. You have to look at their appeal. That's the thing. Those are the things that matter to me. And that's why I tell any candidate who wants to run and I get behind them a certain candidate. I say, what is your appeal? What is your messaging? If I can, if I understand those things, well, first of all, if you don't understand those things, you're going to lose. But if I understand. Yeah, those definitely. Things, you need to understand your own story. Right. Understand your own story. And if you don't understand your own story, then you can't communicate that to anybody else. Um, I say all that to say, that was a long meandering story. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I say all that to say, I often feel like Democrats, you know, they have a myopic view on recruitment and, re and a myopic view on bringing in the right type of candidate or getting behind the right can candidate because they look at the wrong things. They look, oh, can they fundraise? Can they do this? And it's like, that's not how you base a candidate. I mean, I don't know. I'm rambling here, but do you do you? Under, do you agree or disagree on any points? Yeah. Making? yeah so this is, you know, I, I'm going to hedge my bets here. This is a really nuanced sort of the argument with regards to candidate recruitment, with regards to staff retention, uh, building up new talent, things like that. Um, 
there's a lot of different angles to this. And so, you know, definitely to your point, like candidate recruitment definitely needs to be something that we focus on and not just, oh, well, like how many dollars you need to put in the bank account, right? I think, you know, ultimately as a party, we have an obligation for instructional support. Um, You're kind of looking at it as well is like realistically, you can't win without running a campaign where you can't just put money in a bank account and then show up on election day and be like, okay, well, here it is. Um, There has to be a, a, I mean, politics is deeply emotional. It is, it is a a outward reflection of society's values and and where their mind currently is. And if you can't get somebody to tap into that, then regardless how much money you raise, I mean, Cal Cunningham, we just mentioned them earlier, right? You can raise all the money in the world, but if you can't adequately convey a, a specific society or culture values to the public right. and show that you understand, show that you have a foundation of one foot where they are and one foot where they want to go, right? You, you cannot expect to win. And I think a third part of this as well is, is, is something that doesn't get talked about as a lot. Uh, you know, it has a little bit more recently is that even at a national scope, but particularly here in Florida, we really, really struggle to provide opportunities for experienced staff who have experience in their communities mm-hmm. to stay yeah. and to to work and build those partnerships, right? So like every four years, we hire like some 400 some odd people in this state and it's wild how many yeah. people we bring in. Yeah, it's, and it's bad actually. It's bad the fact, I'm sorry to cut you off. It's bad that they bring in, these top advisors from outside the state who don't know the landscape. Yeah, it, it takes a lot. I mean, Florida, I mean, if anyone who knows Florida man, Twitter, this place is, is wild. It, we, it takes a lot of time to understand. It takes a lot of experience to understand, but like, let's be real. It is a very diverse state. And so yeah. you need people from all these different communities yeah. who understand their home. Right. And so, you know, when we're trying to, to talk about setting long-term programs for success, like letting these sort of people, you know, kind of go their own separate way after an election and then not providing them with a pathway to stay connected to their community. is probably the, the, the biggest thing that I see as, as an inhibitor to long-term success. Right. So we have people who are speaking the same language as their neighbors. Yeah. We have people who have grew, grown up in the same neighborhoods. Yeah. We have people who understand the same shared values. And then after the election, we're like, all right, well, thanks for your service, Bob. Right. And that's just an unsustainable model for success. I mean, you can't build the foundation if people are moving bricks every two years. God, you know, it's okay. It's weird. Mark, we had no idea we we're going to go in this direction, but I want to I want to keep peeling this onion. So go for it. No, it's it's interesting because you just opposed that between Georgia and even now we see what's building up in Texas. We mentioned with um, Beto. Um and different parts around the country, Florida, they keep losing elections because they the inability not only to keep in-house talent and to nurture that, but oftentimes, you know, you said, I just mentioned they bring people in from outside the state. And to your point, to your point, like every two to four years, we're in election season and we're snap, we're trying to build the house again. Like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? We're trying to, we're trying to, re, you know, go 90 day builds. And it's like, instead of, building upon everything that we've had established, creating a network of organizers, creating a network of strategists, creating a network of people who are just already invested in the state, understand the state, understand their neighborhood, their district, their regions. The party doesn't do that. And I, I, I know we just had an, a new, um, we got a new FDP 
uh, chair. Yeah, chair manager. Yes. Yeah, but I I don't know if that's a conversation that they're having because we're going to keep losing these elections if we don't figure this out. Would you? Agree? Yeah, and, and what I'll say is, you know, in and I'm not going to pretend to like have many ideas on my speed up, yeah. right? Like that's that's not a, that's not a thing that I can do. Right. One thing that I will say is that I've actively sought out, you know, people within my network and and people sort of in my extended you know, political universe in the state um, who definitely have good things to say when it comes to building the foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a guy who really actually has a vision. Um, and, you know, all, all this to say, like, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Right? We'll, we'll see what happens over the next couple of months. And, you know, there were certainly some issues that, that plagued us the last couple of years that we have to deal with before we can get into that. So money, I feel free. Money, money, money being one of them, bad money management. Yeah. Yeah. Money, money definitely being one of them um, that, you know, I, I would, I would encourage people to reserve judgment until we can kind of see the fruits of those labors start to bloom in a couple of months. Right. Um, I've, I've heard him speak several times. I, you know, I'm not like standing up and giving it a, 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 you know, an ovation, but like, I definitely agree with a lot of the points that he's making. Um, so, you know, we'll see this, this could be, you know, if, if things work out well and we're able to, to listen and keep people in these communities and we're able to have a chair that is, you know, for, for what he says he is really invested in a long-term vision and we're able to have a different approach to candidate recruitment, you know, we could start laying the groundwork for something that could be really special. Hopefully, um, you know, yeah, hopefully. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, we, we can revisit this when we focus a little bit more on 2022 um, later on. Um, I want to, I want to move this conversation towards impeachment. Gotcha. The fun stuff. <laughs> the yeah, the fun, fun stuff. Uh, and like, <laughs> we can pivot back, you know, back to uh, Florida 2022 because uh, there's some stuff we want to mine there. But um, yeah. what were your thoughts on the whole impeachment uh, saga? <laughs> Man, uh, what a ride, right? It was uh, uh, about a week and a half of, of some pretty compelling testimony. Um, you know, I think we, we saw with Jamie Raskin as well. Like, I mean, I wasn't expecting to cry at my computer. I don't know if you were, but like, <laughs> geez, some, of the, some of the emotional testimony from him really, really hit me. But I mean, for, holistically speaking, let's, let's, let's kind of break it down. Right. Uh, like a structural standpoint, right? So procedurally, this is something we had to do. Yeah. Right. This, this is something. Explain for, that to people. Explain that why we had to do it. Yeah. So, for historical record, for setting precedent, for um, ensuring that there is at least some sort of threshold for holding people accountable, you have to go through the motions, and that's true for any level of government. Whether or not it will succeed is not necessarily your fault. Right. But. The, the importance of going through the motions and, and setting down the bar that like, hey, this conduct is unacceptable or uh, unacceptable is is important for future endeavors. Right. So if we had done nothing, then essentially we are green lighting anybody who loses an election to say, hey, well, I just don't really feel like leaving. So let's just have a nice little protest. Let's muck some things up and I'll be going on my very way. Right. So it is it is the precedent of of setting acceptable standards of conduct within the federal government for the highest office in our country. OK, I agree. I agree. I, you know, I know there was a statement, though, that some people are like, well, why are we wasting our time? You know, because, <laughs> you know, it's not going to amount to a hill of beans and, you know, blah, 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 blah. But um, 
I agree with that, though. I agree that you have to. It's almost like establishment of record. You know, I'm, a, I'm an attorney by trade, and they say you have to get it on the record. Like, even if you, if you oppose something, put it in writing and submit it to court, even if you know the judge is going to deny it, right? So you have yeah. to, So you know that just so you know it's been put on record, and so it's an established. So if you have to appeal, quote unquote, you have something to appeal off of. Yeah. And the, and the other angle to this as well is that impeachment is not just like a constitutional sort of operation. It's not just strictly a legal operation. It is, you know, also at its core, a political operation. So this this is it's a, a, a set of procedures that doesn't necessarily follow like a straight legal doctrine. Um, yes, there are aspects of constitutional law to this. There are aspects of, you know, regular court proceedings where we try to introduce evidence, call witnesses and things like that. But it's not the same sort of standard as a regular court case. Um, So naturally into this, you are also going to try to compel people. You are going to try to win the narrative in the media. You are going to try to win the narrative of the people sitting in that chamber. Um, Right. And so you are I mean, a lot of the uh, the evidence that we had during this whole thing was technically circumstantial. And as you know, you know, as a a lawyer, that's not exactly something that you want to build your foundation of your argument on. Right. So, you know, there is an aspect of this that it is a political exercise, whether we want to admit it or not. Right. Um, And I think that's definitely important for for going into 2022 and looking ahead is that not only are we officially putting on the record that this is an unacceptable standard of conduct, we are proving why we are showing the results of, of, you know, of that day of the the riots on January 6th and, and their effect on society. And that's typically something that you wouldn't necessarily do if it's just a legal proceeding. So do you think it was effective, though, the Democratic strategy, I'm saying? Uh, um, you know, I think we'll see. I, I think it was some like like I, like I kind of mentioned, we had to do this. Right. We, we absolutely had to. Now, I think the the individual arguments and the especially the video that was released during this during this whole procedure was incredibly compelling. Right. So whether it was the the uh, you know never before seen footage of uh, Officer Goodman kind of chasing Romney away from the crowd and like we had never seen that footage before. Right. Yeah. And that was an incredibly visceral experience. I mean, like I never realized how close they were. Yeah, we, Nobody knew. I mean, I, I think we had an idea, but nobody really knew just just how close a lot of those um, terrorists were to these elected representatives. Right. Um, I think it was in the same hallway. Like you could literally see them. Yeah, it, it's it's shameful because I, I I think my problem was, you know, Mark. I'm gonna be transparent here. I I want you know you heard Republicans say they wanted they didn't want to drag this out. I'm like the fuck not. Like why not? Like, <laughs> like no, yeah. because, this is because to put to to run through this. And act like you know it literally was just over a month ago, a month and a month, probably like forty-five days ago, fifty days ago, it just happened, and it's like people have already moved on mentally, and it's like wait a minute, like do you guys realize like what happened? There was an attempted coup at at the damn U.S. Capitol. And Seems like something you want to spend a little more time on, yeah. Right, like, and it's like this is something that's going to be written about in history books and. Republicans didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to deal with it. And Democrats have felt like they didn't want, they just were like, all right, let's go ahead. And, and it's just looking up, you know, outside looking in, but 
I felt like we didn't spend enough time. I don't give a shit if it would have taken two weeks because it was, it was enough to mine there about the level of insidious, you know, actions, but uh, from a number of levels, like how do they, you know, why was the permits given? Who, who authorized it? Where was the capital? Like all these things I felt like should have been derived. Now, maybe there's going to be some post actions regarding this and that we're not aware of, not privy to that information, but I just felt like as it stood, that was, it may have been a prime opportunity to get this information out. Even if it would have worn on the public. I mean, who gives a shit? I just, yeah, I think one of the things that, that, you know, I I tend to look at as well is that the, the impeachment, the scope of the impeachment trial itself was the involvement of Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. right? It's just the involvement of one man in this whole uh, process. And so, when there is, we we had several days of all of this stuff, and and like let's be honest, we all we all know what happened, yeah. right? We all know in public discourse, we all know what happened, and you know, no impeachment proceeding is going to change that for us, right? Like right. I think you and I are both kind of on the same page. We're like we've we've seen all of this stuff, we've seen all the resources, we've seen all the evidence, and it's pretty clear what happened. Yeah. On the flip side, it's also pretty clear that Republicans are not going to do this. Yeah, And so you, we are now in, a, in sort of a, a stalemate of a lot of the people who are supporting this have already made up their minds. Yeah. A lot of the people who are against it have already made up their minds. And we are dragging this out for for what? Okay. Right? Like, so to your point, for what are we dragging it out for? So my thing, you're right. The people who are going to, as far as voting, that's been fermented. You know what I mean? Like Lindsey Graham had already a day into testimony. He's like, oh, we, we've already made our decision. And so... I mean, that's not surprising coming from Lizzie Graham because he has no soul. But, yeah. um, but to me, I don't think you play it off of who's who's going to vote for whom. I think you play it for those in the in the general public who may be paying attention and be like, "I didn't know it was this bad," and that's what I that was the whole point for me and where I, I thought they should have had um, witnesses. I understand like it wasn't going to change the vote, but I don't think you do something. Strictly for voting messages, I think you do it uh, for 2022 and beyond. You cast a yeah. die on the Republican Party and those who they're if they're going to vote against it, you let them vote for something that w- that was so dark and heinous that that they were like they're gonna ever gonna have to walk back walk this back when it's time to campaign. Yeah, and and my worry is that you know what we did start to see to the last few days when we when we did start to, to, to talk about witnesses and talk about you know what what's next is a majority of the Republicans said that they were just going to call anybody and everybody to the stand, right? And so you risk losing the power of the narrative that you created during the first couple of days by allowing them to turn it into a kangaroo court, right? Yeah, so I agree. You know, I agree. That I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, Mark. I'm no, sorry. you're fine. Go ahead, man. I mean, I don't know. I, I agree. You're right. We we lose that narrative. We lose. The, we have the risk of losing that narrative. But that's what trial is about. That's what tri- a trial is. Is a tenuous place of yes. You want to be able to control the narrative, but it's a wild, wild west of like competing ideas and competing theories, and you allow the jury vis a vis the public to to make their opinion based off of everything that's being thrown out. So if the Republicans wanted to throw out and bring in any, any and everybody, you know, to this for an impeachment regarding Donald Trump, it's in my opinion, as a trial attorney, that would have the jury 
vis-a-vis the public would have been smart enough to see, okay, yeah, they're full of shit. Because this has nothing to do with anything. While while the Democrats are bringing people who actually are involved with the article of incitement in which they're bringing forth these charges. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you know, the next angle to this as well is that there is a significant amount of other Senate business that was getting held up by this process. And I hate that that's, you know, sort of what I'm, I'm looking at. Yeah. But, you know, we talk about the confirmation of Merrick Garland as attorney general. We talk about the, the large COVID package. All of that was was kind of dependent upon the Senate wrapping up the, the impeachment trial. Right. Because because nobody's going if you're really going down that rabbit hole and, and you're sort of tearing them apart. Nobody's going to vote for that. Right. Uh, and, you know, we, we have a couple of senators who are on the fence about this large government stimulus uh, with regards to the COVID relief package. And so, you know, if we if we had a few more in there and, and we had like the absolutely sure votes, like let's say we had 52, 53, right. then, yeah, I, I think we realistically could have seen this go significantly further. But, you know, in, in the precarious situation, we are definitely having to hedge your bets. Um you know, I personally would love to see Merrick Garland confirmed before the end of the summer. Right. Uh, I would love to see people get checks before the end of the summer. Right. Um, and so, you know, keeping that in mind, I, I definitely think that there was some pressure, you know, obviously unconfirmed, of course. Right. But I wouldn't be surprised if there was pressure from the White House to go ahead and wrap this up. Right. Right. Um, to that point, you know, segue. Uh, I think I read something that there was a one point nine trillion dollar deal that was just announced yesterday. Um, what are your thoughts? I know there's some people who were like, "Hey, fourteen hundred dollars is just not enough money. Um, it's just not enough." Uh, and for them, they feel like Biden or the Democrats need to do more or promise more. And we can get into whole, the whole Biden. Um, his he's between a rock and a hard place type of thing here, mm-hmm. uh, but. You know, what are your thoughts on this the, the stimulus package that was just announced? Yeah, and so I have not read line by line the entirety of that package. Right? It's like three hundred something pages. I'll get to it eventually. But um, you know, what, one of the things that that you mentioned as well that is ex- exceptionally pertinent is that you know at some point we just have to, to start talking about what we can actually get passed. Right. Um, and, and, and those conversations have to take precedent when we're on timelines of families having to pay rent, families having to pay utility, getting groceries, feed their kids. Um, and so what you want to do is ensure that not only are you providing the most relief you can, but you're, you're providing the most relief that can pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that nuance is definitely, you know, I, I look at this as well as, as something that's probably driving the $1,400 number. Um, no, this is not to say that we can't come back later and, and address this, right? This is, there is no rule saying that we can't go back and pass another one in a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I certainly agree that, you know, there definitely needs to be a more sustained, more recurring commitment, um, when it comes towards providing people, um, you know, more liquid assets and more liquid cash to help them with these sorts of things. Um, but I think, you know, coming off the back of the impeachment and, and talking about what can pass this whole giant package itself. And let, let's, you know, let's not forget, this is a monstrous package. Yeah. Um, it is more than has been done in the past year. Uh, Trump and his, his group had no intention of doing something like this. Yeah. Um, so this is a big, big step 
Um, but we have to r- remind ourselves that this needs to be a first step and not the last. Right. Um, okay. So with that being said, because I, I know we, I'm kind of going back and forth here. We talked about Republicans and you needing, I guess you need some buy-in from the other side. Uh, with the impeachment, we saw that there were seven GOP people that, um, voted in favor of conviction. Mm-hmm. And one of them was Burr, Burr Collins, obviously Burr, Burr's retiring. Uh, Toomey, who's retiring. Uh, Collins, she won. We talked about that. Cassidy um, won. Murkowski won, uh, despite losing her Republican primary. Ben mm-hmm. Sass won, which he's an interesting person. Uh, yeah. And Romney, uh, another fascinating uh, person now, Ben Sass has been an you know uh, an avid Trump, um, I guess would you say someone who who doesn't mind telling him telling the public that Trump's full of shit, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of it I feel like is a little bit performative. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, you know, given the the age of a reality TV host, I think at some basic level, all of it has to be performative, right? <laughs> but whether it's it's the core of your your principles or you know just a fraction, it has to be a little bit performative. Okay, so um, I know his biggest thing, and we talked about this earlier, especially during the campaign, was he didn't care about the presidency; he just wanted to nab down the the Senate because he felt like. Democrats were going to run up the run up the numbers, and so I'm sure he was happy that a lot of senators kept their seats. Uh, going forward, you know, and I use Ben Sass as a, as a I guess a, a vehicle of this. What does Trumpism mean for people heading into 2022? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and I think a lot of that is going to be determined by the next couple of months, right? And so one of the things that, that we saw in 2016 with the sort of rise of Trumpism is that he kind of needed a candidate with a little bit of baggage, right? right. So I, I, I got my start for Secretary Clinton. I love her to death, but he definitely needed something to feed off when it came to building a narrative, building a message, that sort of thing. Right. And you know, hit himself with relatively little political experience, there wasn't really anything else for him to talk about. Yeah. Now we have this entire large breadth of four years of just absolute devastation for our country. So naturally, Trumpism is going to have to look a little different because he has a track record, right? right? And we have the, the sort of coup attempt on January 6th. We have seven senators, which is 15% of their caucus, voting to, to impeach him. Mm-hmm. And we have him losing in a pretty massive election, right? This was the most votes that any candidate has ever gotten in a presidential election for, for President Biden. Um, so these are not insignificant things to, to sort of take into account when we're looking at what, what potentially Trumpism will look like. I still think, uh, you know, if, if the Senate uh, special elections in Georgia taught us anything, is that we can certainly expect rural turnout to drop across the board. Um, that was something that was consistent with, with, uh, you know, sort of Trump's pseudo populism movement um, is that we saw areas that hadn't turned out just kind of spike in massive numbers. So it's particularly rural areas 
um, that have kind of been left behind by a, a massive urbanization or even suburban sprawl. Um, you know, one of those things that we saw with, with Warnock doing so well was that he actually did exceptionally well, comparatively speaking, in those areas, not just because, you know, he ran a fantastic campaign, but also because the Trump voters decided to show up when Trump was not on the ticket. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, looking ahead to, to electorally speaking, that's kind of what we can expect. So, now, so I'm from sorry, a, I don't, I don't yeah, want to, I, I hate to kill that, that role, but I, Let's talk about rule, though. I, I, I look, you mentioned that the rule voters um, and their turnout, you don't see that transferring in 2022? I think it depends on who and where uh, we're talking about. Right. So obviously, Trump's not on the ballot. Yeah. And, so you know, with the first election in which Trump was not on the ballot, that was, you know, federally speaking, was the Senate, the Senate runoffs. Right. And we weren't really sure what ways those were going to go. And then it is pretty easy to see, you know, Grant, Ossoff and Warlock ran fantastic campaigns. I love that they sort of ran a slate and ran together on shared values. Right? That is a, a such a hard thing to pull off yeah. and take nothing away from them. But the reality is GOP turnout was also low, uh. um, especially in these rural areas. And so, you know, there maybe it's causation and not correlation, but certainly heading into 2022, they're like for Republicans to sort of re-energize those voters. They need somebody who has been there all along as a sort of Trump trumpeter to, to pardon the pun. And, you know, we have a couple states with that, but we have a lot of states without that. And so you know, it, it definitely is going to be a case by case basis as to what we see. Now, obviously we're here in Florida and, you know, we're with Mr. DeSantis who has slowly been, been, you know, deforming into a mini Trump. We'll get into that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It has been rough to watch. Or, um, or glorious to watch. Yeah. Well, like, depending on your perspective. Right. Right. right, right. And so, um, yeah, I, I think, it, you know, from electorally speaking, that's kind of what we can look at with, with regards to world turnout. Now, one of the other angles to this is what have you done for me lately? Sort of ideology that is always important in politics. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in Florida that is very unique um, is that we do have a sort of nobody has really carried the banner for two things that very, very much play in rural politics. Uh, we, we talk about economic insecurity and we talk about legal weed. And across the board in Florida for the past couple of election cycles, both of those have kind of seen a lot of support in rural areas. And nobody, I mean, obviously we have Commissioner Freed who is talking about that sort of at an industrial scale for the state. But you know, I think it, it transcends more than just one person. I think it's what I'm, I'm trying to get at. So, okay, because um, we, we mentioned the seven Republicans that voted to convict Trump. And the reason I I wanted to pivot off of them, because there is a, there's twofold, right? There's an infighting within the Republican Party. And mm-hmm. at one stand, there's like, we need to coalesce that base, the Trump Trumpian base, um, and into the future of the GOP. And, you know, it, there's energy there, there's interest there, um, but there's other faction of the GOP that feel like we have to completely cut off our arm, the decaying arm of the party, and start regenerating again a better, more sufficient um, body <laughs> of voters. And so, obviously, 
there were seven who voted in favor of conviction. Obviously, they got the blessing from McConnell. Uh, Trump versus McConnell, and everybody who just has any has two eyes and two ears can see that McConnell was very um, sorry. McConnell was very uh, 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 instrumental in trying to get everybody to, to, you know, separate from Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about that? Trump versus McConnell, like what this, or this idea of the GOP trying to separate themselves. So I, I definitely think there is going to be a sort of mentality of cutting off the hand to save the arm uh, over the next couple of years. Right. Uh, and, and you almost have to, right? Like there's, there's no real other way to go unless you really want to go full dog whistle. And I don't think that's a sustainable model for, for a party and a healthy party um, and a democracy. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the nuance to this as well is that, you know, I, I definitely think there were, a, a, you know, a not insignificant number of senators who, if they had taken the question of impeachment independent of their earlier vote to say whether or not the Senate had the jurisdiction to do this, I definitely think that some would have voted yes, because you remember like, uh, you know, a significant number of them voted that they didn't think the Senate had the authority to do this. And so it's kind of hard to convince them that, oh, well, I know you don't think they have the authority, but now I, I want you to vote for the Senate exercising its authority that you don't think it has to impeach this person. Right. So that I think probably maybe two or three would have potentially been on that line. Um, and if that's the case, if, if you know, we break 60 in this. I think it's a whole different argument, right? And so we, McConnell himself in his statement was definitely not happy with Trump. He pretty much directly blamed him for all of these actions, but he still voted no. And I think that it, it really does boil down to that earlier vote of the whole, the whole procedural aspect of he didn't think the Senate had the authority to do it. Whether or not that's where his heart is, you know, it's, it remains to be seen. But I, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get to is the... I guess, political theology of the Republican Party. Can they move forward or do you see them trying to move forward with Trumpism? I think in the short term, yes. Uh, Short term, they'll try to save face and, and, and use it in 2022 while laying the groundwork to get rid of it afterwards. Um, I think that's the most reasonable expectation. Um, Obviously when you're rebuilding, you don't want to get clobbered and get put in a position, especially during redistricting, in which you're going to lose Ooh. power. Uh, and yeah. so with the districts being redrawn, like they can't afford to just get swept across the board. Mm. So I definitely think they'll use it for 2022, and then afterwards we'll see. Let's 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 delve into that. That's like, I, I, You know what? I, I'll be honest. I didn't think about this, that the Republican strategy is prescient on the redistricting. Because mm-hmm. that's coming out in two years, and so they have to almost, you know, um, lie in the squall of pigs a little bit. And I'm talking about Trumpism being the pig, uh, yeah. in order to make sure that they're not going to lose out on power because a lot of the districts going to be redrawn in the next two years. Um, I that's fascinating. Yeah. And it's not just at the federal level either. It's at the state level. And that is where I think it has the biggest impact. Right. So states, there's a lot of states, you know, Florida in particular, 
that have really, really favorable maps for Republicans. Yes. I mean, I mean, extremely favorable. Yeah. Um, and if they were to sort of lose the stranglehold on a lot of those states, they would become significantly more competitive overnight. And it's no, this isn't even something that necessarily requires you know ten years of building a foundation, yeah. right? So some of these states are are purple but gerrymandered. Yeah. And North Carolina, it, Florida, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so if we if we if they lose that stranglehold overnight, those become competitive, and they have to defend on multiple fronts while trying to reshape their party, and that is not a, a recipe for success. Right. Right. Um, talking about a little bit about uh, Trumpism, and I, I mentioned this on. Uh, my political cleanser part three, but you know your view viewpoint on it, uh, just its rise and its sustainability, and just what is it exactly, in your opinion? Yeah, and and I think you you know you definitely had somebody on. I, I love listening to the earlier episodes, and I think one of them uh, put it a little bit more eloquently than I am. But I, I definitely kind of look at it as a less polished Reaganism. Yeah. Right. So it is it is something that kind of rose out of a an ideology that government is not a force for good. Right. Um, and that's something that we saw in the 80s, which sort of created a generation of sort of anti-government, not just voters, but also elected officials. Right. right? So we have people who are representing us saying that representatives are bad. And it's just that sort of like oxymoron. It's just, you know, it's one of the things that's frustrating about politics. But you know, we had just, you know, kind of taking it through the timeline of that, we had just been in, in the duration in the 80s with a massive protest generation in the 70s, a massive unpopular war. Um, the Kennedy debates were televised for the first time. So you're bringing a sense of federalized politics into people's homes, into that dynamic and sort of inserting a, a, a responsibility for shared values into the home. Yeah. Um, then you have somebody who comes along and sort of resets the narrative that we don't believe government belongs in people's homes. We believe it inhibits the expression of shared values and the lack of real uh, success in pushing against that created 30, 40 years of, of almost single issue anti-government voters. Right. And so, you know, people who were, who were young and getting into politics at that age, are now the demographic we have problems with as Democrats, right? So we're talking about the 65 plus white folks, let's be real. Um, They were in their formative years, understanding their political philosophy when Reagan was there. And so, you know, it's almost like not, not quashing that or not nipping that in the bud allowed for an entire generation to develop. And so I kind of view this in the same scope is we have a generation of young Republicans who are looking at this and forming their own political ideologies. And if we do nothing, mm. then they will become another pseudo Reagan generation of voters who will plague us for the next 30 to 40 years. Facts. Actually, I like that. That is a great, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's in one, on the one end it's like, all right, it's, it's a f- passing fancy. And it, he, Trump is an ideologue that, you know, he, he's going to die out along with his ideas, but, like in reality is, you know, the question is, will it die out? You know, it's like, so much deeper than just one person. Right. Right. Like what he tapped into something and he, it's, what did he tap into? There was a, 
uh, statement we used in the last uh, the political cleanser part three uh, populism and like what exactly is populism right and and how it actually would applied into Trumpian uh, political you know campaigning and then looking at it now like it's this it's mutated into this thing right yeah. uh, anti government anti immigrant anti you know collaboration anti science it's anti so much right but yeah. it's, it's against more things than it's for right it's got it's more things against than it's for right and so but even in that thing it's still it's grappled people who are not who you wouldn't consider idiots it's grappled people to where they, if they if they believe in its ideology and you want to know it's easy to say well a lot of it's um bigotry a lot you know it's easy to say that but then that doesn't really that doesn't really fit yes the easy way out for us right it's the easy way out but it doesn't fit the narrative entirely because i think you're missing something yeah and and i think the 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 piece that's missing is that generally across the board with regards to federal politics the republican party purposely leaves out specifics of a lot of policy nuances right right? i think they they kind of figured out in in the early 90s um that emotional attachments to politics are significantly harder to break than logical ones right and so if you allow everybody to form their own connection to issues whether you know whether or not it's right then it's going to be significantly harder to break them and they will be motivating themselves to vote. Right. So, you know, it, it is something that, that Democrats across the board have, I mean, you know, unfortunately we kind of do have to take lessons from is, is how to ensure that we can craft emotional connections to issues the right way. Yeah. It's the, it's the lack of nuance for me. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah, but you're right. Like, Republicans have mastered the idea of lack of facts, lack of nuance, very broad strokes in policy and messaging, and it works. And Democrats, we is like we get so caught up in the idea or ideals of being a policy wonk. I, you mentioned that you worked for Hillary. I think that's one of her detriments that Hillary was was such a wonk. You know, and it's unfortunate because she is she, as a woman she faced vast amounts of sexism. In her approach, because if she had to show that she, and this is sex instance part, um, she had to show her knowledge, which is duh. I mean, she was a U.S. senator and a state and a secretary of state, so clearly she knew what the fuck she was doing. But yeah, clearly, right? But it's like she almost had to talk herself into the interview, whereas Donald Trump did not even have to know there was an interview. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's like having to bribe your way in the door versus stumbling into an interview. You know, one of the one of the challenges that, that Secretary Clinton faced as well is, you know, she almost had to explain why she had or why she had to be allowed to be in the room, right? And and that's such a difficult thing to overcome, right? So, you know, trying to explain to people all of your 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 background, trying to explain to people all of the reasons why you're qualified just to get into the conversation, whereas Trump almost, you know, stumbled ass backwards into the room, was allowed to, to kind of own a lot of this narrative. Um, and so, the, you know, the, the downside of that as well is when you have such a detailed policy oriented approach to a lot of this stuff, you're not leaving a lot of room for that emotional connection. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of candidates that we've seen kind of stumble into that. Um, but, you know, you, you need a, a delicate balance between ensuring that you are prepared and ensuring that you have these details ready to go so that you can govern effectively, 
but also not ignoring the fact that politics is deeply emotional and you need people to be able to build their own buy-in. Right. So let me ask you this. Um, moving away from Trumpism and looking into the person who actually won the office in Biden, <laughs> what is your thoughts on where he's at right now? I mean, I, I know he just had a town hall. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he's in between a rock and a hard place almost. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, well, you, why do you agree? <laughs> yeah, well, so I, I think there's, there's always a difficulty to governing, right? And, and that just comes across the board because you're never going to make everybody happy. Um, so that's just a universal truth of being in office is that you know, every time you try to, to satisfy one group, you're going to piss off another. Um, and especially in this, this era of, of, you know, post Trumpism, so to speak, as, as I'm, I'm optimistically referring to it. Um, you know, there is a reality to where it's a very, very polarized national framework. And so we have, even within our own party, we have, uh, the more progressive wing of it that is advocating for more dynamic, sustained, um, very, very large leaps in, in policy changes. And that's wonderful, right? It is great to help push the narrative along. It is great to you know try to shoot for the stars. And you have a more moderate wing um, that wants to focus on, okay, that's great, but like, what can we actually get accomplished? And you know, Joe Biden being who he is, having run for president a lot of times and you know, being a little bit older and being more from like a New England sort of setting, you definitely um, are, are put in a position of, you know, you want to do all that you can for the people that help you help got you here. Mm. But at the same time, he knows from having been in Washington that you have to take incremental steps. And so it's, it's almost unfair to him that he's been, you know, here for a month and we're in the middle of a pandemic and everybody is hoping that he can solve, solve these things immediately. But at the same time, like but he campaigned you know, on though. Yeah, yeah, you did, and and you kind of you said this stuff, and and you put yourself here, and so you know, I, I think it's just striking a balance between what's feasible and and you know what you promised to do once you got here, and so I think he did a great job of handling that that sort of dynamic during the town hall, but there definitely were some things that that were left to be desired. So I'm going to ask you a question, and there's a reason why I'm getting. First of all, how did you get to Auburn? Like you're a Floridian, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. Um, it, it was kind of a, a, a culmination of a lot of different things. Um, number one, you know, I, I, I applied to a lot of larger schools in the South. Um, I certainly wanted a college experience. And um, one of the schools that that kind of piqued my interest early was, was Auburn. Um, and, you know, I, I went through the IB program in high school and was a national merit finalist. And there's always a lot of money that gets thrown around for those sort of situations. And Auburn offered me a very lucrative package, which, which definitely piqued my interest. And the second I got on campus, I kind of fell in love with it. Um, There is a, a communal family atmosphere that exists within the entire university. The campus itself is gorgeous. It's on like the rolling plains of East Alabama. Um, yeah, I kind of just fell in love with it there and, you know, each and every year just kind of confirmed my decision to go there. So you're a Florida boy going, going to Alabama and so it's the money, right? Well, partly, right. I think that's, uh, it's probably what opened the door, but it's not what made me walk through. Uh, the university itself definitely pushed me through. Okay. So I guess, and some people are listening a little bit, Kamara, where are you going with this? The thought 
I the question I I'm thinking is a lot of times it's the financial portion and reason bring that into Biden mm-hmm. because you know this is the the big thing it's him and student loans right mm-hmm. he wants he's pushing for ten thousand and you know obviously you know Senate Democrats including Schumer have stated that they believe they can get fifty thousand right and now you know his point is that he doesn't think he can actually get uh, he he doesn't think he can actually approve uh, the mm-hmm. fifty thousand or something that to that effect. Which I know there's a lot who actually say that's not true. Um, like first of all, what are your thoughts on that? And and then we can I can expand upon that. What are your thoughts on? Yeah, that? and so you know I, I want to be be very clear. Like I don't have student loans. This isn't something right. that I have an you know, intimate emotional connection with. Um, but you know I I think it's a frustratingly honest admission kind of from the white house right like there's no you know I, i'm not going to pretend to be an expert in in tax policy or student loans and things like that but what i will say is that you know there is a very large risk of if not everybody's on the same page you're going to end up in litigation that is going to be devastating right and so one, one of the things that we're talking about with regards to student loans is right e- economic impact and and helping families and helping individuals um get out kind of from that burden and have a little bit more economic flexibility. Um, one of the things that is sure to happen almost immediately, if there isn't 100% consensus that like he can get 50,000, is they're gonna end up in litigation, right? These payroll lending companies, uh, student loans, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, things like that, we're gonna end up in a scenario in which this is gonna be in court for months. Um, and so I think you know trying to avoid that is definitely one of the decisions or the reasons behind this whole conversation. Um, and, you know, I think the other as well is, you know, we look at, you know, we've, we've talked about people who got you here and we talked about some promises that you've made and people who are involved in this organization. Um, you know, I think there is a, a sort of reticence to immediately provide that amount of just economic, uh, impact out of the coffers while the coffers are already tight. Right. So, you know, I could be incredibly wrong, but anytime you're you're in like reducing revenue during a a period of economic uh, downturn. Right. There's always a reticent as to you're going to have to cut something else. And I think that they worry that if they get this wrong and end up in litigation, it's going to mean that they have to cut something else just to to deliver on that promise. So, okay, it can litigation, but there's also there's also the argument that Biden, through his executive authority, has the, the, the ability to eliminate student debt or cancel student debt based on his, uh, it's an administrative policy. Like, I think I was reading somewhere that based on the, uh, the power called the Compromise and Settlement Authority, um, the Securities Exchange Commission can, uh, like, cut low-dollar deals with banks that break the law, for example, if they decide not to adhere to the administrative executive authority and you know i think the higher education act 1965 um allowed for student student loan uh authorities permanent and it made the student loan authority a permanent allowed them the executive branch to mm-hmm. um impart their thumb on the scale should they want to so um there it, the congressional authority is not needed and yeah you know, and all that i say all that to say a president 
can can and want to, based on theory, cancel the student loans simply by directing his or her Department of Education to cancel it. That that based off of the Education Act of 1965 and the compromise and settlement authority within the branch of government. So yeah, and, and you and I are on the same page of this, and and like I I 100% agree that like this is something that needs to be done. Uh, you know, there there are hundreds of thousands of students across the state or across the across the country who you know we, we talk look at financials being one of the the biggest roadblocks to economic independence right and looking at if if that is 100 within your authority then like that needs to be something that's, that's like strongly strongly pushed uh from the administration now like once again i think you know as an attorney like even if something is is in black and white that's not going to stop people from litigating right right um, and so, th- you know, that is definitely something that they're trying to avoid, um, you know, if, if it was my guess. Um, but yeah, like if it is within his his specific administrative policy and, and administrative authority to do so, um, I, I see no reason why that shouldn't, you know, shouldn't happen relatively soon. Yeah. You know, it's just whether or not now it goes to does he want to do it? And I, Biden, you know, throughout the campaign, he you always saw him like being pulled to the left more than. He wanted to, and more than he felt. Yeah, like being dragged there rather than walking voluntarily. Right, that's a great example. And so now that he's got the big seat, and when he made the statement at the town hall, like I don't have the authority to cancel out debt, and it was kind of like, whoa, 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 sir. We have a thing called Google. Everybody has. Like, <laughs> Everyone's got a supercomputer in their hands. Right, like that is not necessarily true. And I think he saw he had to walk that back, and it went to the point of, well, who's advising him? Who are his advisors? Because that was not a smart statement for him to say. You definitely have authority. Now, do you have the intention to do so? That is the million-dollar question or the $50,000 question, I should say. And And I think the other angle as well, not to interrupt you, I think the other angle as well is that there's a massive amount of transition happening right now in D.C. We are going from people who are pretty much in there to sabotage government. Yeah. To people who kind of have to pick up the pieces and and move forward and put together this puzzle that actually functions and looks like America again, right? Um, and so I definitely, you know, t- to your point, th- there's a lot of positions that aren't filled with policy. There's a lot of positions that aren't filled with advising. There's a lot of positions that aren't filled with you know education policy in particular. And you know, given the DeVos Education Department, there was. I mean, probably like yeah. two people in janitor working in that entire department. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely think that that could could be, you know, hypothetically leading into this sort of thing where he just doesn't have the people on board to tell him, hey, you have this authority. You have this under X, Y, Z, X, kind of similar to what you said, right. um, you know. And so that could be the case. And we could all, you know, come back a month from now and, you know, everybody's got their student loans canceled up to 50,000. And, you know, this could be a moot point. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I I certainly understand like every day it doesn't happen. You start to get a little bit less trusting. Uh, and I certainly understand that response. So is that, was that, that statement of why do you have authority to cancel 10,000, but not 50,000? What, what's happening? Yeah. Like what's happening between that 40,000 that all of a sudden your executive authority is, is null and void. Like, you know, what's, what is the, the big barrier there? And I, I, again, you know. I, I goes it goes into the Biden gaffe, and he does he's done actually a really good job of not gaffing. They've done a good job of curtailing his message or creating a you know, very uh, structured intentions and thoughts and everything. But um, I think that was one of the moments where it was like, oh, okay, 
this might go off the yeah. rails if you're not if he's not careful. Um, but yeah, I, I listen. It's just February. Yeah, <laughs> he just got an office. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, he's I, been in office a month, literally a month, literally a month. You know, um, and so it's like I'm trying to be patient here, and you know, I'm not. I'm giving him some grace, right? It's difficult though, man. Like the pandemic makes things so difficult to sort of put things in perspective, especially a chronological one, man. Like I wake up and it's a week later, and I'm just kind of yeah. wondering where the days went, and so. Yeah. You know, it's, it, I certainly understand, you know, kind of people wondering like why he hasn't done it yet. You know, per, time and perspective is everything. Time and perspective is everything. And it, it, it skews the way we look at things you, to your mm-hmm. point. I think the pandemic makes everybody ha- hyper-focused on what's happening around them. But if, mm-hmm. if we were out and doing things, you know, of course now Florida is open. And yeah. <laughs> so it doesn't matter. I mean, for better we, or worse. For better, better. Right. Do we, do we really have a pandemic? I mean, really? No, not necessarily. Sure. But, um, yeah, to your point, like it's it's wild that he's only been in office for thirty days. Yeah. <laughs> he's only had a job for thirty days, and people are kind of like, "Hey, wait a minute, where's my where's my money at, Biden? Where's my where's my yeah. loans?" And it's like, "Well, listen, I understand if we were like six, seven, a year in, but the guy's barely gotten a chance to get acclimated to his job. Thirty days in, he's still getting people sworn in. Let's give him some grace here, and we'll see where it goes. I mean, I'm not opposed to challenging him." But I'm also not opposed to giving him some grace to figure his job. Yeah, out. and and keep in mind he hasn't even passed his own like his administration's first budget yet. Yeah, right. So that process is going to happen significantly later in the year, and that's typically when you see the outlay of priorities, the outlay of the big ticket stuff, like what's getting funding, what's getting moved, what's getting cut. And so you know we're we're looking 30 days into a guy who hasn't even passed his first budget. Um, but yeah, no, like I, I certainly understand the, the rhetorical aspect of this. Like, this is definitely something that he campaigned on. This is something that his teams have they they wanted to do while trying to ask for votes. And so, you know, we we need to make sure that yeah, we're thirty days in, but we can't be using that same excuse forever. Right. And I will say though, uh, I am happy about the things he has done thus far. Um, yeah, day one, walking in seventeen executive orders. That's yeah, it's a big yeah. statement. Right. And just and just on the environmental. Um, portions and then with the it, 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 trying to rectify a lot of the immigration um, issues that Stephen Miller orchestrated within the Trump administration. So, um, you know, I, I'm I'm hopeful, and so I'm not gonna not gonna land base him too bad at this point. Um, just thirty days in. Yeah. Um, all right. So listen, we talked about we mentioned how uh, DeSantis and Florida. Um, I do want to talk about Florida and, and, and maybe end it there because that's what we. Yeah, are. absolutely. Um, Florida's bu- is busted wide open right now. It's yeah, like, like you know, DeSantis is an interesting thing, and we talked about him earlier. He's a weird case study because he started off as a sound. First of all, he started off Trumpian with his with his, in his primary campaign. Right, and then he settled down in the general, and then when he got into the governor's seat, you know, he was like, "Okay." I mean, I always took, I always called him de Satan, by the way. But yeah, I'm Death Santas. You yeah. know, what, pick your poison. Yeah, I um, but he's kind of delved down into this Trumpian acolyte, going and it's very it seemed like it's intentional heading into 2022. I think he, I think he looked at how Trump won the state by four points. And he was like, okay, 
I can, in order to certify my base, this is who I need to be. Yeah, I agree. Um, we talk about how candidates are, it's always come back to the candidate and or mm-hmm. the person. Is DeSantis beatable? And if that's the case, who do you see that being that person? Yeah. So this is a really, really tough question. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't tend to look at one specific candidate as having all the keys, you know, to, to victory. Right. I, I tend to look at it more as what needs to happen in order for him to lose. Right. Um, so I, I'll definitely say like current outlook is, is that gubernatorial race is likely lean Republican, probably by about two or three points. Um, keep in mind it's margin of error, but, uh, just, just based upon life voters, based upon kind of the, some, some of the stuff we saw in 2022 or 2020, that's probably where we're starting from. Um, and so, you know, with that and, and with the fact that comms is, or, uh, DeSantis has, has employed a, a pseudo comms first strategy, right? Like he's really going out and making issues of things. He is drumming up dog whistles where they weren't. Um, he is very, very much trying to to change the narrative back to a sort of pseudo populism based upon really divisive issues. You know, we need to take a look at what's going on in the state right now. Um, and so, you know, with that, we see the, the HB1, uh, which is his sort of legislative priority. Right. Uh, that is going to be an issue going into 2022. And that is this massive anti-protest bill, uh, anti-First Amendment bill that essentially criminalizes public protesting, which is... That's that's an argument for another day. I'm not going to get into that, I and mean, we'll be here for hours. Right. Um, but it's still, but, it's, that, it, but it's bullshit, and it's, but it's a very dangerous bill. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll just we'll just leave it. Call your representatives, tell them to vote no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so looking at the issues is is what's going to determine 2022. So if those issues themselves are beatable, then DeSantis is beatable. Um, and so you know we we look at the Democratic side with you know. Um, Nikki Free, the current uh, agriculture commissioner, who just released a video from her PC this past week. Yeah. Uh, I mean, anybody who's been around in politics knows that that's, that's like a pre-announcement video. Right. Um, we have a lot of rumblings about the current state rep from HD 47 uh, on Eskamani. Um, she is a more progressive uh, wing of the party. Um, and she's been, I think she first elected in 2016 and has definitely been getting a lot more of the digital supports, a lot more of the, the crowd sort of Twitter support. So Mark, um, Mark, yeah, I want I want you to keep going, but I do want to break down these candidates by the way. Yeah, absolutely. We can okay. do that. Okay. Uh, so, so let me just list off. Um, there's also been rumors of, of Jason Pizzo, who is a current state Senator from the Miami area yeah. and uh, former governor and current Congressman, Charlie Chris. Oh, uh, so he is in the St. Pete area. And one more. Um, um, Val. Oh, yeah. Well, Val, yeah. So Val is an interesting one because I tend to, to loop her into the Senate bucket. Okay. Uh, but yeah. but certainly, yes. If, if uh, current Congresswoman Val Demings would run, that would be an interesting dynamic to the race. All right. So let's kind of, let's, let's break these people down, right? Mm-hmm. Nikki Freed. Uh, the only state, the only statewide elected dem yeah for like the last 20 some odd years yeah um what are her what are her strengths and what are her weaknesses in your opinion yeah so i think 
number one is winning, right? Like we can't be naive about that, right? She won in an, in an election cycle in which Gillum lost and Nelson lost, right? Right. So that I mean that was a very difficult time for Florida Florida Dems. I mean we expected to pick up somewhere near ten to fifteen house seats as well, and we picked up like six. Right. So it was a difficult year for us, and she still managed to eke out a victory. And so you know one of the things that she does exceptionally well. Um, is sort of compartmentalizing issues and and being able to speak on those issues to the audience that is voting in that election. Right. Right. So so her big thing is is legal marijuana, industrial hemp, and things like that. Um, she has been a very very strong proponent of u- using that to revitalize the agriculture industry in the state, which you know we've seen over the past couple of decades has been devastated by hurricanes, by citrus greening. Um, and so it's providing a sort of means of economic success with a new avenue. And that is a very popular approach towards, towards really anything, right? When you, when you give people a new reason to make money, right? Right. Um, on top of that, she has been, uh, you know, very progressive on, on some other issues. Um, you know, we, we look at uh, a lot more of the, the voting rights stuff where she's been uh, very, very vocal, especially recently about the the uh, elections package that DeSantis has pushed through. Um, she's originally a South Florida person and has been uh, pretty vocal for the last you know 10 years or so. But really, we've kind of seen her grow into her own and not being afraid to talk about issues that are contentious, right? And so that that's a that's a thing for Democrats sometimes is we don't want to step on these hot topic issues for fear of retribution. And she has done a great job of sort of keeping the narrative calm um, and discussing these in a, a very civilized manner. So you just let's list to her strengths. What are the things that are, are going to be, you know, deter, might deter some voters? Um, and it could be, it could be aesthetic or it could be just very surface yeah. level, but all these things matter when we're talking about the entirety of a candidate. Yeah, um, I, I definitely think that there's going to be a challenge uh, when it comes to Southeast Florida. Um, so we talk about Miami voters. We talk about you know Miami Dade County. Um, you know, I, she. I'm not a hundred percent sure that there's been enough outreach from her office currently to marginalized communities, to uh, people of color in our state, and you know that is certainly something that she's going to want to hammer out. Right. Like, you, but then again, you know, we look at this and, and who she is as a politician, mm-hmm. right. And, and who we are as Democrats in the state, there's only so much you can do as the agriculture commissioner. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, I want to keep that in perspective um, when, you know, when talking about this, but there have, you know, certainly been with regards to the mar- uh, medical marijuana, there's, there's been an opening up of, of industries and ensuring that, uh, people from those communities have an equal chance. But I definitely think that that's going to be, difficult for her so um you know the thing about that is i I do agree i do agree that you know as an agricultural commissioner doesn't it's she doesn't have a wide bandwidth to engage but there are and you know as a political strategist strategist there are ways you can do sort of speaking tours i remember when andrew a year or two before he started running he was doing these things and I, i was involved with them where he was going around and just doing speaking tours or talent little group settings. And it could be five people in the room, but mm-hmm. he was just talking about issues and he was like, Hey, we're just going to talk about issues. I'm not announcing anything. I'm not 
saying when it projected or anything, but I just like to hear like what's going on in your community, what's going on in your, and then it was a way for him to connect in the 67 counties and in, in yeah. little districts. And he created, I believe this grassroots um, temperament of who he was as a candidate. So even to the point where I knew I told people, even when he was polling fifth, I said, he's going to win because he did what other people didn't do is he laid a groundwork within the state years before he started running. And I feel like Nikki could be doing that. I don't know if she, if she is doing that, if she has, it hasn't been effective because I haven't seen it here in Orlando. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things as well, like, you know, definitely be, she needs to be more, more present. She needs to be visible. Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of times in campaigns, we use this whole thing about feel felt found. Yeah. Uh, so talking about how you, you mentioned Gillum having those conversations with people, it's, it's ensuring that you are on the front line saying, Hey, I understand how you feel. Here's situations in which I have definitely felt like that. And here is how we can find common ground to go together. Right. And that is definitely a pathway that needs to be taken over the next couple of months as she lays the groundwork to, to, to run for statewide office. Right. Um, I, you know, okay, that's one thing where I, I, I see, and and honestly, you're going to hear that theme from me regarding a lot of the candidates, by the way. Yeah. Um. So I don't want to just say that's a Nikki Freed thing. Also, is the state ready for a single woman, single Jewish woman? Right. So I think, you know, she got engaged uh, a little while ago. So I think, you know, that might be uh, a, a little bit different. But yeah, I, I think... There is a significant Jewish population down in Southeast Florida and certain parts of the state, things like that. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's going to be an issue. Okay. Um, I, I definitely think we saw with Secretary Clinton, though, that there's a, certainly a level of misogyny that exists at a fundamental core of a lot of voters. Right. Um, and so I don't know, you know, off the top of my head what that sort of impact will be. I'd like to hope that it's nothing. But, you know, if we're, if we're being realistic, that I, I definitely think there could be uh, more obviously amongst Republicans um, that, that that could be something that they look at as a reason why they won't vote for her, which is a real shame. Rural Florida, though, are they going to vote for a Jewish woman? I, I'm talking I think, about in the panhandle, you know, and in, I'm talking about panhandle and also on the West Coast, like Northwest of the state. Yeah. Yeah, so I think one of the benefits of that she has there is the fact that she was agriculture commissioner, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of one of those areas and where it works in your favor. Um, agriculture is a largely Republican-dominated industry in this state and has particular relevance in these sort of rural areas and the panhandle. And, and that's, and you know, obviously with South Florida and the more rural areas with the Everglades where they grow a lot of the citrus and big sugar kind of running up the state. But it does have a particular place in the hearts and minds of these rural Republican voters. So, you know, I, I think there's probably not a scenario in which we were going to win them anyway, mm. but I don't think she's going to lose anybody because of it. Gotcha. All right. All right. Um, moving on to Anna Eskimani, House District 47 um, current representative, and um, she has a, an appeal throughout the state and even nationally. I saw her tweets were... Um, Retweeted throughout um, the uh, if Twitter was a real life. I mean, no, Twitter's not a real life, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah but, uh, according to Twitter, though, she has a big national appeal as well. Or uh, one, uh, as far as Florida candidates are concerned, uh, the I would say, and maybe agree or disagree, the biggest 
appeal nationally um, comparatively to the people we've mentioned or going to mention? Yeah, I, I think she's the most visible of the candidates. That's the better word. Um, yeah. She has the, the largest online profile. And you know, I think part of that as well is you know, she is a you know, phenomenal person. I, I've had the pleasure of knowing her for a little bit. Um, and I was working as an aide in the house when she was there. Um, she does a fantastic job at what she does and is even, you know, willing to pull in and go above and beyond her job description. I think one of the things that she's best known for is, you know, during the last 11 months or so, uh, when the unemployment system in the state crashed, she kind of picked up the mantle and did DeSantis's job for him. Um, which, you know, I'm, I'm glad somebody's getting it done, but it shouldn't have to be up to a state rep to do the governor's job. Um, so, you know, that, that is definitely an area in which she has gained a lot of traction over the past year. Uh, will it be enough to win the primary? You know, we'll see. Uh, but she's definitely, you know, in terms of where you would want a candidate to be, um, having, you know, with the past 11 months and, and kind of leading into her making her decision, which you know, I kind of expect to come by May. Um, you know, she's, she's in a good place specifically with the narrative. Uh, she definitely dictates and controls a lot more of that than any other candidate. She's effective at messaging. Um, one of the things I would say that I see her biggest detriment is that her life experience is very null uh, and void as far as not operating outside of the political sphere, right? And, yeah, I mean, she's... I know she worked at Planned Parenthood, um, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, she was a student, then she worked as a legislative aide, and now she's a um, state legislator. State legislator, and I wonder if that's going to play into how gov- how um, people view her as like she's just a politician. She's never had a private industry. She's never worked outside of a p- political s- scope of her life, and so that's something I think that might. Yeah, I tend to, to, to not necessarily think it'll matter too much, okay. um, especially when she's being as effective as she is at messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one, one of the things that we, we've kind of consistently seen is that if your, your profile and your platform is good enough, it doesn't really matter what you did before. Right. Like DeSantis was a congressperson, but nobody kind of views him as a congressperson now. Right. And and so you know, I, I, I tend to not think that will matter as much. OK, so that goes into my point then. Do you think she's professionally ready, though, with because she's a state rep? She's not a state senator. Um, Mm -hmm. She's, you know, uh, all intents and purposes, I guess, wants to go from jump several levels up from state rep to governor. Yeah. And will the will Floridians say, okay, well, uh, no, I think you need a little bit more experience in that capacity where we want you to run our state um and to point where she's really left-wing super left-wing and i don't know i don't know if my my politics aside i don't know if a super left-wing person is going to win this state to be honest yeah Yeah, what i'll say is that she has more state government experience than desantis so like you know I, i i don't necessarily think the state the the lack of serious executive experience will matter um but yeah, the, the, the ideology is certainly something that the, you know, we want to keep an eye on. Um, she is probably the furthest left of the candidates in the race. Yeah. Um, you know, on, on, on pretty much every issue. But you know, that's not to say that 
every single thing is going to be, you know, put forth as a progressive policy. Um, that's not to say that the entire dynamic of the state is going to shift from far right to far left overnight. Um, I definitely think, you know, if, if there's one thing that we've kind of seen over the past couple of years is that when you really get down to campaigning, like you need to listen to the issues of the people that are in the state. And so regardless of what, you know, your personal, uh, you know, framework and ideology is on a specific issue. If if you're not winning votes, you're not winning hearts and minds, then you're not going to succeed. So I definitely think there's going to be uh, a little bit more of a, a leveling out. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not trying to uh, kill your potential job outlook at either. Yeah, I've known a couple of these candidates. Yeah. Uh, I've probably, you know, with the exception of Charlie Crist, I've worked in the same building. Yeah. Uh, as most of them, and you know, I, I respect them all and love them all dearly. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely put that out. These views are only Kamara Williams; they are not of Mark. Okay, so, <laughs> uh, so yeah, no doubt, no doubt. All right, so Charlie Crist, you mentioned him. Yeah, so so Charlie's an interesting story, right? So anybody who's who's been around in Florida politics for a while knows he's originally a Republican, ran yeah. on governor, and then eventually switched parties, ran as an independent. And uh, then switched again and has been a Democratic congressperson in Pinellas for a little while. Um, his big deal is the environment. Um, so that's kind of what we've seen in Congress. Uh, he's passed a lot, a lot of legislation regarding the environment. Um, so that is always, I mean, you and I both know this, talking about the environment in Florida is good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, that can win or lose people elections. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we'll, it we'll crosses, see it's, it crosses the political lines. Yeah, it does. It, it, it is transcendent of political ideology, right? We, we make a lot of our money on tourism and, you know, even within that ecotourism, right? So people coming to the beaches, people coming to the Everglades, people coming to the Keys, people coming to the Bay. Um, and so if you don't have a healthy, strong environment, your economy will crumble. And so he definitely gets that. Now, you know, there is there is uh, some some reports are going around that he had dinner with John Morgan the other night. Yeah. Um, and that's a real interesting twist. Right. Because, you know, John Morgan, the quote unquote, weed daddy of the state, um, you know, he, he is a very, very wealthy human being. Right. And he's kind of plugged in with the trial lawyers with, with Florida justice. So, you know, that would be a big donor base. Um, typically they, they kind of split, but have definitely given a lot of money to democratic lawyers over the, over the last uh, couple of decades. And so that is certainly something to keep an eye on is, is the whole money battle that if, you know, if, if that ends up being something in his back pocket might, might push him to run. So, I mean, I, I didn't expect to go into the subject, but that is the thing. And I, I mentioned the other podcast, how, what worries me about this state is that it's gonna it's gonna take, um, and we can talk about this in the Senate as well. It's gonna take like a hundred to two hundred million dollars, maybe. Oh no, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. No, wait. I'm I'm sorry. It's gonna probably be. It could probably be like a three hundred, four hundred million dollar race because we saw this, both sides. It's gonna be massive. Yeah, because we saw in um in just a runoff for Georgia, we saw them spend one hundred fifty million dollars in three weeks, and so which was dumb. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of money that could go elsewhere. Yeah, and I just I'm worried that about these races uh, that we may lose decent candidates because they don't have the ability to fundraise. Like they don't have the ability to actually say, "Can you raise me four hundred million dollars for this seat?" You know, and 
I, I think in our lifetime we're going to see a billion dollar Senate, um, uh, billion dollar Senate races and billion dollar um, governors races because no, I hope not. no but I, I know I hope not. But I mean, it was one hundred and fifty million dollars in nineteen ninety four presidential election. So that yes, was wild. yeah, and that's wild, right? So you think in so in our lifetime we've seen it shift already, you know, with the money. And so someone like John Morgan is could be a capstone to who decides who can get the run. And that's pretty scary for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we've talked for a long time about not wanting money to be the, the end all be all for candidates and the end all be all for races. And, you know, kind of here we are in the most expensive election cycle in, in American history, talking about what would be potentially the most expensive gubernatorial cycle in history. Um, definitely leaves a lot of room to be desired for, for winning on issues. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so... All right. The problem with Chris, I see, is that he's almost like a career politician. <laughs> Not almost. He is a career politician. Does that hurt him? Or does that help him? Or does that um, maybe not Yeah, it's... It's difficult to try to take too many lessons from the 2020 cycle. But what I will say is that Biden's kind of been a career politician and he thumped Trump. Right. Yeah. And so if there's one thing that, you know, if hypothetically we had a level headed career politician running against a Trumpian figure after watching 2020, I would probably be OK with that. OK. Um, but, funny. you know, not for no other reason other than, hey, like it worked once. Let's see if it works again. Right. Right. Um you know, it, it, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I tend to, to think that the profiles beforehand don't matter as much as what happens when the race officially heats up. Mm. Mm. That's fair. That's a fair point. Um, I don't know much about the state senator from South Florida, Pizzo. Yeah, Jason Pizzo. So Jason is a lawyer from South Florida. Um, in terms of Florida politics, he's a relatively newer uh, addition to the state Senate. I think he's kind of like within the past 10 years. Um, he's a great guy. Very, very intelligent. I had the, the, um, you know, fortunate honor of working in a couple offices down from him, uh, when I was with the Florida Senate, um, you know, and, and for, for Democrats kind of looking for lessons from 2020, one of the areas where we got, you know, to use your term earlier, Molly walked was Miami, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We, we got creamed and yeah. he is a human Miami. Like from Miami, right? So like that is um, something that we have to look at. He checks off some boxes, yeah. Yeah, and and you know, so just just on its surface, like we we talk about ways that we can sort of win that vote back. Um, we talk about ways in which we can re-energize the community from Miami Dade. Right. Um, it's, which is slipping tragically red it's it's gotten red by the day it's, it's like yeah and and keep in mind like he's also a lawyer right so he was he was an assistant state attorney with miami Dade state attorney so we talk about trial lawyers with with charlie christ right like that is that is another avenue through which funding we were talking about you know potentially not having enough funding going into this race i definitely think that would help him but yeah like community engagement wise and and you know holding on to your biggest bastion of votes in the state, right? I think Democrats might be looking at having somebody from that county. Right. 
is there something, and I, I, cause I know this was the fact for Gillum, you know, um, there were two South Florida candidates, um, in during the, during the 2018 primary race. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying that they're going to lose because South Florida, you know, people turn away from South Florida candidates more than they galvanize around them because yeah. it's, it's almost like they look at Florida into like three parts and two thirds of the, the state does not fuck with South Florida as much as South Florida want thinks people do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're all kind of in battle against each other. Right. Right. Um, so that, I, I think that could be a thing where it's like, all right, he might check off some boxes, but his box that may actually help him also may hinder him. But, you know, in a primary, that may not make a difference, right? Because it's, yeah. it's all, it's, you know, it's about how many how many slices of bread you can get on your side of the plate. So, all right. Yeah. Um, U.S. Senate. We, we mentioned uh, uh, Congressman Demings here. I, I don't know. Um, it's weird. Between... DeSantis and Rubio, I don't know who's worse, but I do know who's dumber. And so Goodness gracious. That's a that's a tough ask. Yeah. Um, I know who's dumber and it's 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 uh Rubio. Rubio's the dumbest out of all of them. Yeah. So, so I think Rubio has definitely been positioning himself for something bigger for quite a while. Yeah. Um and you know, we saw in the nineties like the prevalence of Miami talk show radio hosts, right? Like right. that was how that community organized. And it's almost like he's turned himself into a, a you know '90s version of a radio host, where he's just talking about random shit all the time. Random, uh, yeah. It, but it's hot button, like very divisive stuff, and it, it doesn't follow any path of logic, and it's just designed to get people interested. Right. So you know, we'll we'll see I, with the U.S. Senate. You know, obviously the the two candidates. Well, there's been a lot of candidates moved, but the two ones that I have a particular eye on are uh, Stephanie Murphy, who's a U.S. Congresswoman from the Orlando area, um, who's one of the first AAPI member from yeah. Florida delegation, um, and then Val Demings, we kind of mentioned earlier. Uh, so Both of Congress- Central Florida, by, by the way. Yeah, which is which is very interesting. Right. Uh, you know, typically when we've looked at a lot of this stuff, it's been one extreme or the other, where you have like Tampa folks or, or South Florida folks, and you know, both of them being from Orlando, uh, it's interesting it, it, to, to say the least. I tend to to lean more on the fact that Val Demings would have a little bit more success, um, you know, but it remains to be seen whether or not she'll even get in the race. Uh, Congresswoman Murphy has been really kind of hinting at it, you know, like the wink, wink, nudge, nudge since September. Um, so she sent out a, a sort of pseudo fundraising email after Rubio made some big gaffe in September uh, that went to a massive list statewide. Um, and, you know, it, it was it was pretty clear what the connection was. And, you know, even just most recently, her team has registered the domain name of something that is you know, Stephanie for Florida or something like that. Mm. Um, so there's definitely a move in the works. It's just a matter of what it's for. So. With both of those candidates, ironically speaking, again, both of them being from Central Florida, weird enough, they don't have much of a grassroots support. They don't. Yeah. They, they don't. They because they're very top top down in their approach to politics. They haven't galvanized any grassroots organizations. They don't know, engage. I know I'm here locally. I can tell you they don't engage with grassroots organizations. I know throughout the state. They don't, I, you know, and again, these are views of Kamara Williams, not of Mark. So, you know, so um, I'm not trying to kill his, 
his chance of getting hired on. But I'm saying, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I don't see it. And he had they haven't done the the work. They haven't done the work. Um, yeah, I don't think they're in positions necessarily where they've had to. And let's keep that in mind, right? So, like with congressional seats, it's not exactly a typical avenue through establishing these massive you know, swaths of, of grassroots support. Granted, we've seen some people do it. We've seen some people do it exceptionally effectively, but it's typically not the seat where you see this massive statewide impact. That's either senators or like, you know, the governor's office or something like that. Right. I agree with that. However, we mentioned like with Gillum, how he would do speaking tours and things yeah. of that nature and do le- different levels of engagement. I'm not saying they have to do that same playbook, but there is a, there is a designed playbook in, in mind about how to, engage people throughout the state and i can say that again from the the conversations i've had throughout the state uh neither one of them have done that and they don't seem like they have the appetite or aptitude to do so um as of right now you know right now i think being the key yeah as of right now now true enough when it gets to election season they may do that but it also it may turn off some of those who are organizers or grassroots but like okay well we haven't heard from you in how long you've been in Congress and now all of a sudden you, you're trying to contact us. So I don't know. I, I can, I'm telling you there is a deep seated conversation between those two um, yeah. that I've heard and it's very poignant and very, t- you know, you could, you can, it's tangible in its sense that it it matters as far as coalescing a base. But again, that's a tomorrow conversation. Um, anything else, Jay? Do you want to talk about 501c4s or do you, you think we've, we've gotten the grid off the bone off this one? No, I mean, you know, there's an interesting dynamic that we're kind of seeing develop in the state. I'll, I'll kind of end it with this. It's an interesting dynamic that we're kind of seeing with the state where partnerships are sort of coalescing. Mm-hmm. Uh, groups are kind of coming together to form larger groups where it's almost a consolidation of efforts. Um, you know, one of the most most poignant things that we just saw is new Florida majority and organized Florida coalescing into Florida rising. Um, so those are two relatively large organizations that are now one. Um, and you know, with 501c4s, like I, I loved my experience there. It was a unique challenge to something I had never really done before. Um, and I think they do phenomenal work and to kind of towards what you were pointing out, they are the ones who are in the communities. They're the ones who are there year round doing this hard work, keeping people engaged, but also like bettering their lives, right? It's not just about politics. And so uh, ensuring that we have a connection between whoever does decide to run and those groups who are there year round is just so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. Man, I think we did. we, We talked about a lot today, man. Yeah, I think we got most of it, right? Yeah. We just called it a day. We'll go home. Yeah. You know, so um, listen, man, I appreciate you guys for listening to this podcast, Political Cleanser Part 4. Uh, Mark, I don't know. Did you enjoy it? If you enjoyed it, would you come back on? Yeah, absolutely, man. Just time and place. I'd be happy to come back on. Yeah. So um, I appreciate it. We'll get that scheduled. And listen, if you guys like this program, please share on all your social media uh, formats, you know, obviously Twitter. Facebook, you know, Stitch, all them places, Instagram, whatnot. Um, and then uh, text your friends because, we, as we say on the show, sharing is caring. Uh, there's nothing more, just like in politics, there's more nothing more more um, poignant than personal engagement. So when you text your friends like, hey, this is a great program, great podcast, uh, check it out, sharing is caring. And we believe that 
um, that moves the meter a lot more than anything else. We don't want to be the best kept secret. Um, so anyway, um, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And with that being said, we're going to uh, ride out. So 